when my grandpa found me, I don't remember how old I was, um, but I was curled in a ball and I was watching a TV that wasn't on. I had all my eyelashes plucked out. There was no power in the apartment, um, rotting meat in the fridge. So the whole house smelled like death. I didn't know what reality was. I was doing so much hallucinogenics and so much powders that I didn't even really know what was real and what wasn't. Getting back together with those family members, you know, I did so much damage that it's taken so much time. Even I, I mean, I celebrated my two year clean on Friday and I am still trying to mend this breach with this family and it's working and things are getting better, but I've done so much damage. People have always said I'm a really good speaker and I, I talk really well. Well, that that's, I was a con artist. I mean, I was, I was fake. I was a liar. I was, I was a phony. My name is Anthony Capazzoli and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. Johnny Ray, it's wonderful to have you on the show and thank you. I sent out that request on Twitter. You responded and I'm so glad that you did. I, you know, I talked a little bit in advance of our session today or our episode today. Uh, I am super excited about talking with you and, and having you share your story because it was a great one when we talked and I think the listeners are going to gain a lot from this as well as uh, promote all of the amazing things that you're doing to support recovery. I Super impressive. And so I don't want to get ahead of it. But I, I would love to maybe have you tell a little bit about your backstory and kind of maybe, and what I've always termed, and this is not a medical term, this is just for the show, pre-addiction. So like, how'd you grow up? And tell us a little, a little bit about that first, and then we'll roll into, you know, just naturally progress through addiction and then what I'll call like transition into the sunlight, if you will, if you're okay with that. I'm totally okay with it. You want me to start from, my, from childhood? Yeah, whatever you'd like, man. So pre-addiction, man. Let's let's hear what Johnny Ray is all about. I love this part of the story. <laughs> so I had an amazing upbringing. Um, I was one of these guys that had everything they needed, not everything they wanted. And I think that's very important to recognize the difference. Yeah. Meaning not spoiled, but I could have went anywhere and I could have did anything. I would have had complete support for college. I could have had any career choice I wanted to. Uh, my family owned a business at a young age, an ice cream store in Marysville, um, Baskin Robbins. And so I had um, opportunities a as a kid that a lot of people didn't. Uh, you know, we weren't wealthy by any means, but my family, they really, really cared for me. On on both sides of my family, we didn't have any addicts. You know, uh, I didn't, I, I started smoking for fun. I started drinking for fun. I started taking acid for fun. I, I, I thought it was a way for me to become cool. And that's. I wanted to be powerful. I wanted people to know my name. You know, I'll, I'll admit I was always small growing up. I've only, I mean, I'm five foot four and my um, way to gain power and recognition and money for me was to, to start using narcotics, start using drugs. And um, my sister was older. So I started hanging out with her crowd um, to, you know, marijuana and drinking like normal teens do. Uh, before you know what I'm, I'm trying cocaine and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trying LSD, a lot of LSD, a lot of ecstasy. I really liked going to raves. I really liked the rave scene. Uh, I mean, I live in Seattle. So, I mean, right next to Seattle. So Seattle's rave scene at the time was amazing. And, uh, you know, now I always say this in my stories. When I say amazing, I'm not, I'm not saying that my drug use was amazing, but people right. like to say that they had no good times while they were using drugs, in my opinion, are fake because yeah. That you know, there were good times. It's just not the way 
I'm an addict. So it's not the substances that were the problem. I've told people acid is absolutely amazing. I can never do it because I'm a junkie. You know, I'll do acid until I live in under a bridge. That's just the way it is for me. And sure. so same, it's bad for you. I'll tell you that, you know, when people, I'm really real about addiction. I, I tell people, yes, methamphetamine is extremely bad for you. You know, alcohol, if you have a glass of wine, it can be really bad just like anything, but it is bad for you, but it's not the problem. You're the problem, the addict yeah. problem. So with that being said, I, I experimented with a bunch of stuff. You know, I, I loved to take ecstasy and acid uh, at the same time. It was called candy flipping, and we used to go to raves and party and get ourselves lost. Well, I remember a key moment in my life. I think I was like 16 years old, and my family never left me and my sister alone because they knew that we liked to party and do some get out of control a little bit. And so uh, they decided, well, we're going to leave for a week. One week. We've never gone on vacation. I mean, imagine raising us 16 years, me and my sister. I have one sibling my sister and uh, we were always, you know, not, we were always energetic and, and had good times, but never broke the law or never did anything like that. So they decided to let us go for a week. So during that week, my dad, you know, approached me, my mom and dad were all about honesty and I broke their trust many, 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 many times. My dad, right before he left, he, you know, sat us down at the table and was very real. You know, we were still in high school and he said, you know, you uh, do not throw a party at my house. <laughs> I looked him dead in the eye and I said, I'm going to throw a rager. I'm going to throw a massive party. And he's just like, Johnny, I'm telling you, right? And I was dead honest because that's what they were like. They were like all about honesty. And so I was like, you guys, I'm just letting you know, I already have friends going to come over here. And and my mom's like, um, I trust them. I, my dad's like, we're not leaving. You know, we're not going to leave. I don't trust what's going to happen. So after long convincing, they leave. And I literally had cars pulling up in the driveway. I mean, as soon as they're pulling out, I have friends pulling in. I live next to a grocery store, so I won't ramble too much, but I live next to a grocery store. No, I, I love it. Okay, the the party ended up being uh, ginormous. Um, I had all my friends park at a grocery store so that the neighbors wouldn't see how many cars in front of my house. I lived right next to, like, an Albertsons. So I just had all my friends park there. Well, uh, I had a lot of uh, different narcotics buddies. In high school, I was I was popular. So, uh, and I, popularity to me means that, uh, not just popular with the popular crowd. I mean, teachers loved me. The nerds loved me. The jocks loved me. I, I, I got along with everybody. Well, that made my drug addiction more of a problem because I didn't pick mm. one. I, I wanted to do acid. I wanted to do ecstasy. I wanted to do Coke. I wanted to do meth. I wanted to smoke pot and I wanted to drink. And, uh, during that party, we had all that out of my house. I was actually selling it out of each room at that house. And the party lasted for about a week. Um, holy hell yeah screen door got ripped off ping pong table destroyed garage destroyed people passed out everywhere you know i had a, i hired a dj i mean it was amazing well, <laughs> I, I have visions of that movie i can't remember the name of it when that kid throws that big ass party in la somewhere somewhere in california and then they, it made the news and it was a real thing and they made the movie about it I'm, I'm envisioning i'm envisioning that i can't remember the name of the movie that's not important but this is what i'm thinking in my head <laughs> Yeah. And it was and it, like, I keep saying amazing. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Cause I'll be specific about my drug use and stuff, you know, of how that is. But I was, te- I was 16 years old time of my yeah. life. All my friends, my, all my sister's friends. We, I mean, it was, it was a really good time. We had a, it was, it, but the house was destroyed. And then my parents were going to come home and my parents were not, <laughs> my parents were not people that uh, got fooled. They were not people that fooled easy. There have been multiple stories to those another day, but they were people that knew when I was up to no good. You know, one time I'll just give you a quick story. One time I stole a bottle of tequila from my pantry and I filled it up with water 
and I got caught with it. And this was later. This was like, I don't know, when I was 15 or something like that. And, and so uh, my mom and dad were like, you know, where'd you get the tequila? And I lied. I said, Oh, I got it from a friend at school. And you no, know, sense of my room they pulled the bottle out from the pantry set it down and said i feel like if i'm gonna drink this it's not gonna be tequila it's gonna be water it's like they knew and i'm like oh my god and that's where the honesty thing came in so story short uh they showed back up and the house was we tried to clean up the house the best we could my dad found some paraphernalia on the couch and some things of that nature uh beer cans and stuff in the hedges you know the house was destroyed the neighbors said there was there was people there even though the cars weren't there and uh, my dad at the age of 16 or my dad, when I was the age of 16, kicked me out. He said I had to be out by the end of the month. And I remember him being really stern, you know, and, and, you know, when I was young, I got spankings and stuff, but he was, he just sat me down at the table and said, Johnny, you're a, you're a nuisance to the family. And, and uh, you went against my will and I need to leave. So I packed my bags and I moved to a house and started selling cocaine. And this was about 16 years old. Um, I, uh, still went to high school, so I still went to my classes and stuff high all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I selling cocaine was something new to me. I was dealing with some pretty bad people, uh, yeah. you know, and it was, uh, getting out of control. Um, it was actually right around, um, like nine 11, I think, I think it was doing, it was nine 11 in 2000 and what, I can't remember. Um, it's yeah. So I graduated in 2001. So. Anyway, I started selling cocaine. Things got out of control, and uh, I started missing school a little bit. Called my dad, asked to get moved back into my house, and you know he accepted me back. I was still doing narcotics, but he didn't know. I kind of lied to him and told him that I wasn't. Um, and then as soon as I hit eighteen, I moved out. You know, I graduated high school. I got lucky. You know, why I graduated high school because the teachers loved me. You know, I, I, got, I got along with teachers. I got along with people. I was on the wrestling team. I mean, I was, I was, little did they know that I was using heavy drugs all the time, every day, and it was getting out of control. I mean, I fried acid during my graduation. And during the graduation, I was the one walking around uh, while I was getting my name called to get, get my diploma. And I was high as a kite. And I don't really remember it. I just remember my parents going, why is Johnny the only one? walking around 500 kids, you know, he's just stammering around. I was like, didn't remember where I was. And so, <laughs> uh, so sorry, it's hard to keep rambling. No, here. no, no. I, this is great. This is exact. This is perfect. Uh, can I ask okay. a quick question? I'm, I'm just, did, did you have a, at that age or at that time, did you have a drug of choice? Cause mine, mine, uh, alcohol, cocaine, and cigarettes. Did, did you have one that you kind of would lean into more than others? Or was it just a kind of a potpourri approach? So it was kind of a potpourri approach. Um, I really liked each, oh man, it's so funny. I'm sorry. I know we're, we're okay. Um, I liked the drugs for different reasons yeah. and I utilized the reasons. Um, if I was going to go party in Seattle at a rave or a dance, I, I loved acid and ecstasy for that. And so I would, I was a mood drug addict, you know, if I was tired, I'd do Coke and meth. If I was, if I wanted to get some, uh, get some sleep cause I had been awake too long, I'd smoke some pot and, and take, you know, some, smoke some opium. You know, if I wanted to go party in Seattle, I would do, but by the every, I would fluctuate so much, you know? So I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't sleep very much. And when I did, it was for long periods of time. You know, it was days on days off kind of an attitude and uh it really really caught up with me so i mean i i, I liked it all it, it, sure. it made me feel good and i didn't use it for depression i didn't use it for anxiety i didn't use it for trauma i used it because i liked it it was it made it made things fun you know uh at that age you know not a lot of cell phones were coming into play 
you know, I had, I had a car. I had, I loved the girls. I loved the money. I loved that kind of stuff. It was awesome. So when I was 18 years old, I was selling Coke out of my, my dad's ice cream store in, uh, in, uh, Mary soul. And um, I was also working there, you know, full time. Um, but I moved out the second I, I turned 18, I moved out with my sister and, uh, my sister is, is a pretty tough person. Um, she not tough, like emotionally, well, emotionally too tough, like the Hulk. Like if you, she, I've seen her knock my my mom out in a single punch. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've gotten into scuffles with her. In fact, I have three screws in my hand from a fight that occurred with her. And, uh, that happened. We moved out together. I don't know why at the age of 18. Uh, we got into a fight and I, I broke my hand. I got three screws in it. And that's when I learned about uh, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontins. Um, something I had never done before, never experienced before. Now I'm getting written prescription pills, a broken hand. I've lost everything. I'm living in an apartment that's dir- dingy. You know, it's dirty. It's in a bad area, you know, and uh, it was bad. It took me six months of cranking a crank to turn my hand back into place. And uh, that's wow. when the opioids started affecting me, you know, um, I, after my hand broke, am I rambling way too fast? Incredibly fascinating. I, so please continue. Okay. So, uh, so broke my hand, uh, started figuring out what opioids were. And then of course, prescription runs out, hand gets better. Now I have that onto my plate with my Coke and my meth and my acid and my ecstasy. And so the next couple years, I really don't remember. And that's, the honest truth. Um, I don't, there's pivotal events that I don't recall. In fact, to be honest, my dates might be a little off on this entire story. And that comes from drug, drug abuse, dates, times, ages, years, circumstances, situations are all still a blur to me to this day. Um, I try to piece them together and they come back as I tell my story. And as I share and talk at meetings and you know, I'm getting an opportunity to speak at a lot of awesome places. And when I do my pieces come back, I'll be like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. But that comes from heavy drug, uh, drug use. And so when my grandpa found me, I don't remember how old I was, um, but I was curled in a ball and I was watching a TV that wasn't on. I had all my eyelashes plucked out. There was no power in the apartment, um, rotting meat in the fridge. So the whole house smelled like death. Uh, and it was just a, you know, and I was rocking back and forth. You know, I I didn't know what reality was. I was doing so much hallucinogenics and so much powders that I didn't even really know what was real and what wasn't. And so that's the last moment that I remember where my grandfather, one of the most amazing men I've ever met, strongest men I've ever met, decided to give me an opportunity to change my life. And he asked if I would move away and leave. He said, grab a bag. I'm going to give you an opportunity. You grab a bag. One bag. You don't say goodbye to anybody and you move to a different town. You move to Winlock with me. I don't really remember making the decision. I just remember ending up at in Winlock, you know, just ending up in a different town. Um, that's the hardest thing that I've ever had to deal with in my entire life. I never said goodbye to a single friend of mine. Not anybody I went to high school with. Uh, none of my best friends in the world. One day I was there. The next day I was gone. And that lasted for about 15 years. So when I moved, I moved in with my grandfather. Uh, he didn't know that I didn't plan on getting clean. I just planned on starting over. I knew that he had money. I knew that he had an opportunity to to help me get back on my feet. And um, I knew it was just a matter of time before I picked up again. And I did. 
thing, this roller coaster. I mean, I could tell you tons of stories, but this went on and on. And, and the thing about me is I was really, really good at pulling the wool over my family's eyes. They were easily fooled. It's that they loved me so much, but I took advantage of it. And it's it's some of the toughest things I've had to make amends with. Getting back together with those family members, you know, I did so much damage that it's taken so much time. Even I, I mean, I celebrated my two year clean on Friday and I am still trying to mend this breach with this family and it's working and things are getting better, but I've done so much damage. Well, during that time, um, I knew that I could move from family member to family member and they would support my problem as, as much as they could because they loved me and I knew I could take advantage of it. So I moved a lot. I thought I could move around and get whatever I wanted just so long as I had the job, I had a car, I had a girlfriend, I had a place to live. If I wore a mask, people would believe it. I've always had the gift of gab. People have always said I'm a really good speaker and I, I talk really well. Well, that, that's I was a con artist. I mean, I was, I was fake. I was a liar. I was, I was a phony. And this went on for long periods of time. It seemed like every single time I would gain something. I would lose all of it. I I gained the job. I gained the car. I gained the girlfriend. I gained it all. And then I'd end up living in a field, starving, homeless, eating out of garbage cans, sleeping under bridges, sleeping on park benches. And then I'd do it again. And I'd start over and, and just start over so I could go out and use drugs again. And then I'd try different things. When I moved in with my grandpa in Winlock and I started over, that's when the methamphetamine really, really hit my hit me. I did meth before in doses with all my other stuff that I had did. But methamphetamine made me work harder. It made me think faster. It made me feel stronger. It made me feel I didn't have to sleep as much so I could accomplish more. And I liked the way it made me move. I liked the way it made me think. It took over my entire life. Every other drug went out the door. Um, after I had moved in with my grandpa, I can't remember the specific age, but once I started doing meth, then there was no stopping. I was going to do meth for the rest of my life. I had made that decision and that's what I wanted to do. So you tracked on the meth with the clarity of thought and you say, and, and the ability to accomplish more. I always found with cocaine, it might be a little different with meth, but there was a drag to it where I felt maybe I was accomplishing more and thinking in, but I really wasn't. It was really just treading water or running in place till the next bumper line. And, and I, what I did accomplish was sloppy and messy. Was there an acuity to your ability to use math or was it something that you manifested in your head? Oh no, I love your questioning. Your question is so good because I'll give you an example. I don't like to balance my checkbook. I don't like to do my paperwork, right? But methamphetamine made it focusable. It made it interesting. I mean, I used to say that you could be doing the worst thing in the world. It doesn't matter. Like the most boring thing. And if you do math, I mean, who cares? It, it makes it interesting. And so you're right. It was really a manifesto in my brain. I would utilize methamphetamine for its uh, making things more interesting that I didn't necessarily want to do. You know, when you work a job for long periods of time, things start to get really, you know, the same. But when you're doing meth, your brain's always running. I mean, things are fascinating. I, you know, I, I've done a lot of studies on different drugs because I'm interested. And methamphetamine makes your brain... It releases these chemicals that make things happy and enjoyable. And like you can do things that you never thought you could do. You know, you enjoy things that you never thought you would enjoy and you get to experiment. It's, it's crazy. But 
all the same time, it's killing your brain and making it that much harder for you to ever do it normally and naturally ever again. So I didn't know that, you know, I'd work a job and it'd be boring. And then I'd like, Oh, I'm going to organize my cabinet. Why not do a bunch of meth? And that's, that's just how it was with everything I did. Yeah. So I guess it is, I mean, it was just, uh, I don't know. After I had found meth, I mean, it just went on for, for way too long. It went on for long, long periods of time. And I always ended up losing everything and ended up, you know, losing my family and friends. And I always ended up living in cars. And so, yeah, my story continues as I just uh, this went on for long periods of time. I uh, ended up moving out of my grandparents' house, getting my own place, losing everything, living in a car. Um, then my mom, you know, offered me a place to live. Uh, when I lo- when I lost everything the first time, I ended up living in a field surrounded by garbage, like most tweaker palaces look like. <laughs> I say tweaker palace, uh, you know, yeah. garbage just things are destroyed everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm five miles off the beaten path. And I remember that, uh, people are looking for me because I haven't had any conversation with anybody in a long time. You know, cops are starting to show up and trying to find me. And, you know, I was, you know, 110 pounds sunken face, sunken eye sockets, just, uh, completely living in garbage. Finally, after six months, I don't even know how it happened again. It's very vague. I remember my mom giving me an opportunity to uh, change my life. And she little did she know I was just going to move in with her and do the exact same thing. I moved to Vancouver, started, you know, getting clean or, or making people believe I was going to get clean and then found that hookup again and then started uh, doing meth and got kicked out of my mom's house for doing meth and uh, ended up living in a trap house. And this trap house was we were squatters. So we. We're not supposed to be there. And I remember the house got raided by the cops and everybody went to jail but me. And so I got this label as a snitch. I got this label as people thought that I was ratting on everybody in the house so that I could stay free. And that was never the case. But who am I? I'm a tweaker, right? I mean, who's going to believe what I say? So now I have my family, you know, not knowing where I'm at and hating me. And now my friends hating me. It was just, it was just really, really difficult, you know? And so again, I got things back in order to the best of my ability, still smoking meth, moved into apartment, met a girl, same thing. This was a rhythm. I I mean, it was, it was the same thing. Isn't that the definition of insanity is uh, being an addict, you know, I'm good at faking my way through it. Right. And I create scenarios to, to, to continue what I'm doing or what I want or need. So the lying and the structure and, and the dedication to getting what you want takes over and you go back to the routines that work for you. So I think you said it best earlier when you said that you were a con artist and a liar. I was as well. I mean, you, and you know, and, and there's different levels of that. So you, I put my face on depending on who I was talking to, the situation I was in or who I was hiding from. It was really about hiding what I was, who I really was, you know, and it, because it worked, you just continue. And, and being, when I gotten clean, I've been clean about 27, 28 months now. And what I try to explain to people that are beginning the journey of sobriety, I, I say, look, like I, to get clean, I had to break the, I'm almost 50. I'm 49. I'll be 50 in December. I said, I had to break 49 years. Well, so 47 years, I guess, 47 years of bad habits. I right. said, it didn't just start when I picked or started doing my first lines of blow or my first drink. I said, 
in order to get to that point, there was a pre-me, if you will, pre like the pre-addict is kind of in my head. It's not a medical term. It's something I completely make up. So anyone that listens, I am not trying to redefine textual <laughs> terminology. And, and I say that because some people give me a little shit once in a while about that use of term. Like, what do you mean? And I'm just saying like, who was before I was addicted? And right. I'm not trying to define anything here. So, but I, all those bad habits began before I was an addict. And what the addiction forced me to do is get better at hiding it, being ugly about it, getting what I, you know, all that stuff that you described. And right. so I, I, I understand in my own way what you're saying exactly where you just keep recreating that vicious cycle to get what you need until it blows up and then you move on to the next one. Right. So all that aside, I'm curious though, which this is an amazing story. And I think we should do multiple episodes to dive into some of the, the, the deeper, <laughs> darker stuff some other time. But um, I, what I'm curious now, because first of all, you do, you, you have a very, very, very good ability to speak and tell stories in an engaging way. So that's for sure. When you mentioned that earlier, um, and I'm not just blowing smoke here, like you very engaging. I'm curious now what the transition was like, because you've been clean for two years. So what, what was, was there a moment for me? I call it my everything and nothing moment, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I'm just curious, what was it that finally clicked, snapped, broke, or what, what was it that led you into the two year sobriety? We just got done talking about that rhythm, you know, that consecutive motion. And, you know, before I knew it, 15 years had passed, 15 years of this jumping around stuff, um, just everything, gaining things, losing things, you know? And I remember at my breaking moment, I remember it. Um, I was living in a truck at a campsite, starving, eating peanut butter and I had lost absolutely everything. I said I had lost things before. Houses, family members, trust, that kind of stuff. Awesome. This time I had literally lost everything. I didn't have a single family member that I could con. I didn't have a single person that would talk to me. I had no money. I had nowhere to go. And I was starving. It broke me down. It, it made me think to myself, am I going to try to do this again or not? And on my sixth day clean, not by choice, because I didn't have any drugs yeah, um, and I didn't have any money, I heard a voice from God. I've never heard God speak to me before. I've never, you know, my family has, has been Christian, a uh, Christian family. Um, you know, we attended church younger sometimes, but not very much. You know, I knew what my, my faith was, but never really followed up with it. You know, I always say God was around. I was just never talking to him or listening, you know. And I heard a voice from God and it was very clear. Now, mind you, this could have very easily been a nightmare. This could have very easily been a figment of my imagination. It doesn't matter. This was the turning point for me. The voice said, are you done? It was in a question format. It was almost like I was given a chance to make a choice right then and there by myself, not with another family member, not with another um, when I heard that voice, I instantly, I was sick. I didn't feel good. But, you know, I was depressed. And I said, yes, I'm ready. And when that happened, doors started opening up for me immediately. People started coming around. Like a, a buddy that was in Narcotics Anonymous for a long period of time showed up and wanted to get me introduced to a fellowship, getting me into meetings and meeting up with people in recovery. Um, I, I, had no, I hadn't talked to my dad about 15 times maybe in, you know, the last 15 years, mainly on a birthday or Christmas. And uh, I remember calling him and, and telling him I'm starving. And, you know, I'd lied to him many times just to get money out of him. 
And uh, I called him and said, Hey, you know, I'm ready to change my life, you know? And I had never said that to my dad before I'd said it to other family members just to try to get their money. You know, I was pretty uh, aggressive in my behavior towards those members of the family, but my dad was smart. He, he wrote me off and I'm not saying my mom and grandparents are not smart. I'm just that they were, they didn't know what enabling was. They thought, um, loving me, you know, they loved me and I love them for it. And, and, but their damage is so much harder to fix because I broke them for so many years. So my dad, he wrote me off. I mean, he would talk to me on Christmas and, and, uh, you know, Thanksgiving or on my birthday, but, um, I called him up and I said, uh, Hey dad, I'm ready to change my life. And he was like, bullshit. I don't believe a single word you're going to, I mean, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you know, dad, I, I, I really am. I want to start over. I want to try something different. And he was like, okay, how about you do this? Why don't you go to Narcotics Anonymous and why don't you get your 30-day clean tag and show me that 30-day clean tag and then maybe we'll work something out to where you can come live with me. So the first 30 days of my recovery, it, my first time, you know, wanting to be clean and ready to be clean, I slept in the back of a truck. You know, I, I, it wasn't the, the Holiday Inn. You know, it was me getting clean, being, having a difficult time. I mean, it was a struggle. It was like every day I knew I'd have to go back and starve. You know, I knew that every day I was going to have to go back and, but I was willing to do it. It's like, what are you willing to do? And I tell people this in recovery all the time. Are you, you get out of life what you put into it. So what are you willing to do? Are you willing to do the same thing to get loaded that you are to get clean? That's important. You know, it's, it's your, um, people think they're going to get clean and they're just going to get jobs and they're going to find something immediately for them. You know, everything's going to work out. No, you're going to go through pain. I mean, the pain is, is the part of the recovery. So long story short, I, I end up moving, uh, moving in with my dad. I, um, after I got my 30 day clean tag, I moved in with him. And when I showed up, he had this long list of stuff to do. And I started following protocol. I learned to take suggestions. I started learning how to, how to do things basic, make my bed, do my laundry, you know, do things that I had done high my entire life, get a job, work that job. You know, I'd never worked a job clean. I had never dated a girl clean. You know, I had never done, it was all new to me. And, oh, I guess I should tell you about my sponsor. So I met a sponsor in Narcotics Anonymous. This guy plays a pivotal role in my recovery. If we have time, do we have time? Please. No, of course. Yeah. Okay. So this guy has, uh, so I, it's, um, Oh my gosh. So I went to my first narcotics anonymous meeting and I was not all about it. You know, I was like, I don't want to sit around with a bunch of people and share my feelings with, with random strangers and talk about what I've gone through and what I, what I've experienced and stuff. That's just not for me. I'm not about huggy, huggy, kissy, kissy, that kind of a thing. And there was this guy there and his name was John. And he spoke to me every time he spoke at this meeting, I sat in the back with my arms crossed, you know, I didn't want anybody to talk to me. And every time he spoke, it was like, he was talking directly to me. I knew after meeting him like six or seven times that I wanted him to be my sponsor. Um, he was one of the most amazing men I have ever met in my life. And I say was because he passed away and I'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, he taught me, he started my recovery story. He started by having me remember where I came from. He showed up at, you know, I showed up where he was at. Sorry, I'm adjusting here. Um, we, we had in-person gatherings and uh, he pretty much had me share his story. And that's where the first R in my recovery program comes from, is remembering where we came from. And he was a really big, scary, but thoughtful and loving and caring person. You know, a sponsor to me is not somebody who's going to lead you. It's somebody who's going to journey with you in your recovery. It's somebody who's going to share the, the pain and the, and the stress of recovery with you. It's not somebody that's going to boss you around because I mean, we're addicts. I don't like being bossed around. And, and he wasn't like that. He was a really, really awesome guy. So I worked my first four steps with him. I moved in with my dad in a different County 
and ended up working steps with this guy. And on my fourth step, you know, I've shared secrets with him. I'd never shared with another human being. I got real and I let down my guard. And then uh, one day I got a call from his sponsor that he died of a drug overdose. And man. I'm sorry. It's it's okay. Um, He went out one. I mean, he, he had like a decade clean and he went out one time and, and overdosed. And I felt so odd about it because I felt like I had shared some of the deepest, darkest secrets with somebody who technically saved my life. And then I felt like I wasn't there for him. And yet I had this vision in my head of like, you know what, Johnny, you need to honor him by doing everything possible to help others get clean using his format and his way of being a sponsor. And that's where my my program came from is that's where it started from was an amazing man who saw through my bullshit and wiped me off, dusted me off and gave me an opportunity to change my life. And then he passed away because he went out one time. And it's like, since that moment, and I moved in with my dad, I absolutely changed my life. I wasn't just getting clean time. I decided I was going to do whatever I could to help people get clean, no matter what that looked like. I was going to do anything possible. I was going to get involved in every service I could possibly get into. I was going to volunteer at cold weather shelters. I was going to serve time feeding the hungry. I was going to build parks for the elderly. I was going to get involved in church programs. I was going to get involved in fellowships. I was going to get service positions all over the place. I was, I almost made recovery my addiction. Actually, I did. I made recovery (laughs) my addiction. Um, It was, it was, it was a way out for me. I was like, you know what? I I know what I'm supposed to be put on this earth now. I know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I'm supposed to help people get clean. Well, it's definitely um, your superpower. That's for sure. We talked about that in a little bit before we even got on the air. And I tell people this all the time. I think addicts in recovery, that is their superpower, is to be in recovery. And but the superpower comes when you help others in their recovery. That's that's the addicts or the those in recovery superpower because you have the grace, the ability, the understanding, the strength, and the know-how to help others. And you have done that at an incredible level with the program that you have and helping people accomplish their dreams and goals through recovery. Um, I'd love you to talk about that for a little bit and maybe to wrap up because I, I that to me is honoring your sponsor at levels that your sponsor is smiling down on you for sure because of the honor and the grace that you're giving him with this program that you have. Cause it's truly, truly amazing. So, um, one of the, thank you, by the way, for all that. I appreciate it. Um, so five R recovery, um, it has to do with the five R's five phases of getting clean and, uh, remembering where I came from was something that John had me do. And I think it's important that people become transparent. The times are changing people. You know, things are different now. And with the times, we've got to roll with the times. With the change, we've got to roll with the change. You know, when a lot of these fellowships were designed and created, fentanyl wasn't even a thing. You know, you got to think. these there, There's things that are happening. You know, social media wasn't a thing. You know, the word anonymous, nothing against narcotics. Anonymous, but anonymous is not transparent. That's hiding. That's, in my opinion, if you want to get help, you've got to remember where you came from. And that involves the good and bad. 
So five hour recovery, five hour recovery comes from the five phases of getting clean. And it comes from my own testimony. It's what I did and continue to do every single day to get and stay clean, to stay clean. And so we remember where we came from. You share your testimony, the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, the difficult parts. And, and you walk with it, with, you walk through it with somebody, you know, you, you, you share your story, you share your testimony, your story matters. You go through it and you find the difficult parts in your life. And that's where the first R came from, from my sponsor who shared that with, made me share that with him. And then you recover. The second phase is, is recover. We recover from the bad. We're never going to fully recover from the bad. The recover part of it will continue on forever. You know, it could be trauma or neglect or depression or anxiety, whatever it is. got to get to the root cause of your problem, of your story. I mean, it could be abuse at a young age. It could be a car accident. It could be, you know, my hand injury was one of them where I found what opioids were or opioids were, you know, could be that. And that could mean recover, meaning like you, you see psychologists and psychiatrists. I did a lot of that. I saw 15 different doctors at one point because I thought there was something wrong with my brain. I joined a fellowship. That's also part of being of recover, the second phase. So we remember where we came from. We recover from the bad. The third phase is rejoice. We celebrate our life. We get an opportunity to look at all the miracles that were happening in, in your life the entire time, and you, you weren't even made aware of it. You know, one of the things for me is I never got arrested. I couldn't believe it. I've been handcuffed about 116 times, but I've yeah. never been arrested. I have no record. I was a miracle. I never had kids, so I didn't put any children through this. Those are the things that we need to focus on. We need to rejoice on that. So after we remember where we came from, we share our story, we recover from the bad, we rejoice over the good, then we get a chance to be reborn. We get a chance to start over. We get a chance. That's the fourth phase is reborn. A chance to start over, start fresh. You get an opportunity to make short-term and long-term goals. Look forward to the future. Figure out what you want to do. What do you want to go to school? Do you want to cook? Do you want to, you know, whatever it is, you know, you want to be an athlete, whatever you want to do, that's what reborn is. And then you get a chance to relive and that's phase five. Relive a life of service and helping others, taking your transformation and what you've gone through and utilizing it and helping other people through the same thing. And that's what 5R recovery is. You know, with the change, I think that there shouldn't be any limits to people's recovery. I think that um, if you put limits and restrictions on it, you see, uh, addiction doesn't discriminate. You know, it doesn't matter where you came from or who you are or what you do. It doesn't matter how you were raised. I mean, it affects all people in different walks of life. So why do we handle each case in a group format? Why do we not handle each case individually? Each person has a, has a certain thing that might work for them. And, and my goal through five-hour recovery is to embrace whatever that is, help them with whatever that is, and let them get an opportunity to enjoy that. And so that's where five-hour recovery come from. One of the things I think I'd like to share, uh, just maybe as the last point, is, is what, what you mean by helping people, whatever that means. And I think it was what I think is the most gracious thing that you, we talked about was when you said that you know, you help people find jobs, you help them prepare to find jobs, you help them find programs to learn how to, to develop skills that they have or that they want so that they could find the job and get the job they want. And not just not just to be a mechanic or whatever it is you, you like, if you want to be a painter, let's figure out a way for you to learn how to paint for free or whatever that is. Um, yeah. If that means an artist kind of painter, not necessarily a, a painter, painter, whatever. But, but the nice thing is I'm not discriminating against the two. I'm saying that right. you, you, you said that you would help anybody to do anything that they want to do. And when you mentioned helping the woman, I don't remember if you mentioned her name, so forgive me, but um, helping her develop a way to share or write her poetry about recovery. Like to me, that is the most wonderful giving thing ever. And and I love the fact that you embrace 
each individual's recovery and their life goals associated with that to help them fulfill theirs. It, it's it really is amazing. I, I'm honored that you're on the show telling your story because I'm humbled by it. It's truly the glow that you give is remarkable. And that, sir, you should be very proud of because it, it's not, it's, this is real as it gets in a wonderful way. Um, Cause you are, you put, you walk the walk with everybody and it shows it's truly your gift. And it's, I, I'm grateful that you're on my show. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. I absolutely think you're, you're, we've watched some, some of your stuff and, and it's good. And, and I, and I, you know, I appreciate you having me on. I don't do this stuff very often. I hope to do more of it. Um, I think that the more we can get the word out there that we're, you know, we're, there's a lot more addicts out there than not, you know, we're a lot more common than not the, the victim card. We've, we've played the victim card, you know, it's time to, you know, every individual person, I love people's stories. I love people. I love experiencing things with people. And giving them an opportunity to change their life is truly one of the most rewarding things that could possibly be. And I don't put any restrictions or any guidelines on it. If I can't help you, I'll find somebody that can. And that's why I'm trying to build this network. I'm trying to build addicts, helping addicts. You know, I do testimonies of people and their real life stories because maybe you've gone through something that I haven't. So, you know, if there's something that you've gone through that I haven't experienced, well, let me find somebody for you. Let me find somebody that shares the same things that you go through and and connect you with those people. You know, I'm not, I don't have all the answers, but maybe I can help you find somebody who does have some more answers. You know, this isn't going to be a long-term thing. This is a life-term thing. Recovery will be for the rest of your life. It's it's a matter of of taking what you've learned, utilizing it, turning it around, and helping other people. Um, if you can do that, if you can find your purpose and what your purpose is in life, it's so much easier to stay clean. It's so much easier to get clean. I didn't know who I was when I was a junkie. I didn't know. I had to find out who that was, and that took time, but I put into it. I put in work. You know, I work a full-time job and I do this on the side and it takes time. And I'm, you know, it's, it's something that I dedicate my life to. I know what I was put on this earth to do. I was put on this earth to help people get clean, whatever that looks like. And, you know, sometimes people just want to be heard, you know, and that's one of the big things. That's where the first star comes from is remember where you came from. Some people just want to share their story with me, you know, share their story with somebody else. And I love to hear it. I'm like you, Anthony. I think you're amazing. This entire time I've literally just babbled (laughs) for and you've just sat there but i do the same thing i love when people and then they, they're like well am i talking too much and i'm like no your story's amazing like i just yeah, it's yeah interesting to me it makes me go and then you know it's awesome is finding that person and connecting them with another and then those two go off and do their poetry or their painting or their sculptures or whatever and you're like wow they're literally helping people and you know what i'll say one last thing it doesn't just if you are a mom, a dad, an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent, a cousin, a son, a daughter, you are affected by addiction. If you think that addiction is this little hidden circle that doesn't affect you, look outside because there are more homeless. There are more mental health. There are more things that are affected by drug use than ever in the history of mankind. And the problem, it affects everything. It affects jobs. It affects everything, crime. You name it. If you want to fix the world and help the world, if you start helping addicts and getting them clean, you're going to notice your communities are better. You're going to notice your cities are better. You're going to know that people, human beings as a whole, people are going to open up doors for each other and pull open chairs for each other. And because you know why? Addicts have been down and out. We've only got one direction to go. When you're eating out of garbage cans and you're starving, you only got one way to go and that's up. And that up shows positivity, shows creativity, and shows helping other people. 
You'd be surprised at how many people get clean and do remarkable things. It's amazing. And I absolutely just want to be a part of it. So I love it. I love it. Well, I appreciate it. And five hour recovery definitely appreciates you. And you know, I, I, I am honored. I am honored as well. I think this is great what you're doing. I think your podcast is phenomenal. I think that if more people did this and people had other outlets to go to, it would really help people. And I think you're doing great work. And so thank you, Anthony, for having me on. I really appreciate you. My pleasure, sir. Thank you so much.